City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. The acres and acres of tar and cement. Uh, Zeb and Zeb Peaks over there. Sweating buttons this morning. Karina's on her way. Yep. I'm Kevin Healy. It is City Limits. It's the fourth Wednesday of the month. And we've got two guests this morning. We're going to talk to Pam Morgan in the first half of the program. Pam was um, not quite the original, but six months into the Children's Farm in Collingwood being formed, Pam became manager. And I think many people are aware there's currently a dispute there because the community gardens there. The garden plots have been closed by the committee and there's a dispute taking place and Pam's going to give us the history of the place as the virtually the first um, long-term manager of Children's Farm. So we'll get some background to what's happening and her comments on what's going on. Pam, of course, a long-term campaigner around issues to do with gardens and sustainable food. She was she actually helped set up the um, the program in Havana, Cuba and been there a couple of times doing that. So anyway, we're talking to her about that in the first half. That's actually a pre-recorded interview. She couldn't be available this morning, so we recorded that a couple of days ago, but uh, it's done. And uh, the second half, we're going to be talking to Jess Harrison, Jessica Harrison from Wontaggy, whom long-term listeners might recall, um, was a regular commentator on the desalination plant during that dispute years ago at Wontaggy, and um, we're going to catch up on that just to catch up what's happened since. But more particularly, she's currently involved in campaigns around the need for public housing and uh, and poverty in those sort of areas. So we'll be talking to Jess in the second half about those issues. Yep. And just in relation to... Oh, look, I haven't poured you a cup of tea. i better do that first. Oh, time. yes. Also... I, I, I realised when your tongue came out, I knew you. I thought this this young woman needs a cup of tea. Yeah, I'm parched. That's right. Um, also, if people can hear funny thumping noises in the background, there's just some works going on. Uh, <laughs> but right. don't worry, we're not being attacked. Well, there's, there's new air conditioning going into the studio, which is really good because it means people can then come and go here much more freely, which is going to be excellent. I've got to get up and hand this over to you. Okay. Great radio, we're both standing up miles from the microphone. <laughs> yeah. Um, just in terms of city limits, again, long, long-term listeners, because this, this program started with a group called the People's Committee for Melbourne many years ago, and um, and one of the full, one of the we we got funding for a part-time worker, and and that worker for a long time was Mark Riley. So in the early days of this program, Mark was one of the co-presenters on City Limits, and pleased to say he he. Um, the last couple of terms, he's been a Greens councillor at Moreland, but last week Mark was elected mayor of Moreland. So congratulations to one of our former presenters. Yeah. And he also, um, just interestingly, um, he he had a rainbow thing with him. I wasn't there, but a but friend who was said he had a rainbow, um, some rainbow symbol with him, and and boasted uh, on his election that he was the as far as he was he knew the first openly gay mayor of Moreland. So there you are. Um, and in fact, a sheer chance, but the, the group of people from the old committee for Melbourne still get together occasionally and have a meal and discuss the problems of the world and solve them by the end of the meal and of forget them next morning. Um, but um, 
by sheer coincidence, it's nothing to do with Mark being elected mayor last week, but a couple of recent dinners have been cancelled because of lockdowns. We've set them up and then had lockdown, but in fact, we're meeting tomorrow night, so we'll be able to congratulate, I'll be able to congratulate Mark in person because he'll be there. So there you are. Hooray. Yeah. So that's that. Anyway, back to our favourite. I'm going to have a sip of tea first. Hang on, it ticks him. Yeah. Say uh, something. Yeah, you say well, something. In the yeah. meantime, yes. Uh, in the meantime, there's been oh, our oh. Um, classic shifty business for mining companies to report on. Um, so there was an article uh, in The Guardian about mining giant Glencore. Um, and it's really a, quite a, a horrible thing. So they've launched uh, a public attack on two Indigenous people who are seeking to stop the mining company um, destroying the site. This of is an, an ongoing problem. Zeb. These wells. Indigenous people act like they own the bloody place. Yes, they do. They, they do. They absolutely yeah. do. And uh, I think after Rio Tinto, this is just um, even more... You know, it, it's even more obvious, um, that, like, the trend <laughs> that mining companies are going on. Um, so, yes, there's two um, Wanara people, uh, Scott Franks and Robert Lester, who have been um, – they've applied to protect uh, this Aboriginal massacre site from um, the Glencore's project. Um, and Glencore has put an advertisement in the community newspaper – uh, basically, like naming them and saying, "Oh, like these people are trying to stop our project, and we've had independent studies um, into these places, and like the actual massacre site is twenty kilometers away, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Um, so that's that's some news uh, from well, one cool. mining. I wonder guy. what their argument will be when they actually want to uh, want to dig twenty miles away, twenty kilometres away. Of course, where the actual well, 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 who knows? But that's their claim. But um, yeah, if, if they're correct and they then want to mine there, what will their excuse be at that point? Potentially, then they'll conveniently <laughs> <laughs> move twenty kilometres, the, the site twenty kilometres back to where they've already destroyed, and say, "Oh, sorry." Where they've already dug up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, people can find out more about that. I, I think um, Scott Franks has done an interview on 98.9 FM or something. So um, I'll try and find that and put it in the show notes. Right. Yeah, that's oh, that's that's because, of course, in the last week we've had uh, mining companies announcing the biggest gas uh, projects in Australia ever, et cetera, just on the eve of, yeah. or just as we come out of... Uh, of a, a conference that was supposed to solve uh, the climate change problem, but they they actually they're putting in the biggest mine ever, and saying it's it's part of the transition to uh, to, to zero emissions, which is interesting, isn't it? Amazing, yeah. To say the least. <laughs> <laughs> now, interestingly, also the Herald Sun a couple of days ago because a new survey came out and they're number one for news in Victoria, standout year of journalism, and a whole page of page which just says how absolutely wonderful they are and what wonderful journalists they've got and how professional and how absolutely superb the um, the Herald Sun is. By the way, the same day, the other papers said they, they got the same result and they were the best, but that's beside the point. Um, anyway, they promoted themselves and at the annual general meeting last week of the um, of News Limited, the, the Murdoch company that runs all these these, these papers and all this, this, this media empire... He's at least got uh, got a fair bit of front, the old Rupert, because he accused Facebook and Google of censoring conservatives, and um, he said, 
a one significant reform of the digital platforms. What we have seen in the past few weeks about the practices at Facebook and Google surely reinforces the need for significant reform. There is no doubt that Facebook employees try to silence conservative voices and a quick Google news search on most temporary topics often reveals a similar pattern of selectivity or, to be blunt, censorship. And on he goes... And you think Rupert Murdoch talking about censorship yeah. for yeah. God's sake, and uh, but also, of course, um, I think we we can now claim that he can't attack us because we've just quoted him. So we do give a voice to conservatives here. Yes, we do. We do. Uh, I think it's also funny that just pretty much everyone has a reason to be angry at Facebook, <laughs> no matter what side of the political <laughs> spectrum you are. <laughs> There's some yeah, reason well, to be annoyed. We mentioned some time ago also that uh, Terry McCran, he's so-called financial expert, economics expert, came out with a, an article saying what a magnificent man Rupert was and still in his old age is still doing great things, an absolute hagiography article, hagiographical article of about um, Rupert. Well, you'll be pleased to know two days after Rupert's um, general meeting where he said that, Facebook publishes and must be damned, Terry McCran, so Terry knows where his beard's butted. And, <laughs> and he, he goes further, he says social media like Facebook, YouTube and the rest, search engines like Google, don't need to be better regulated. See, that's what Rupert wanted. They need to be destroyed. He's gone further than Rupert. He wants to get rid of them altogether. So there you are, which is a bit of bad luck because then the next day, this was terrible. Mm-hmm. Google said they're going to invest a billion in Australia and it's in, in league with the CSIRO and supported and praised by Scott Morrison. So Scott obviously missed out on what Rupert said. Oh, whoops. Yes, just terrible thing, that. Terrible thing. And having said what a great what great journalists they've got, there's a photo in yesterday, no, Tuesday. Yeah, yesterday was Tuesday, wasn't it? Yes. Tuesday's yes. financial... <laughs> getting lost here, aren't I? Because pre-recording, you get yep. lost where you are, don't you? <laughs> but we're back in the studio now, listener. We actually, we are in the studio. Um, and um, the there was a photo at the Liberal pre-selection for Casey um, last week. That's the Smith, the, the bloke who's resigning as, as and retiring the Speaker. Uh, a safe Liberal seat. And a woman called um, Roshina Campbell ran for it. And at the, she's talking to Josh Frydenberg at the pre-selection. She didn't get it. She lost to a bloke. Uh, surprise, surprise. But behind her is her husband. You can see him clearly. Now, her husband happens to be a bloke called James Campbell. And those who read the Herald Sun and the Murdoch Media will know he's an arch-conservative columnist. Who who just spends you know he just writes these columns attacking Dan Andrews and the Labor government mm, mercilessly right. day after day never has a good thing to say about them. Um, what they don't in in saying what great journalists they've got in that other article, of course, they don't mention that a bloke like James Campbell was once the press secretary for the Liberal Party, um, and um, his wife or well, it doesn't matter who you who you were married to in some ways, but at least he he was actually there with her at the Liberal Party pre-selection. But that we don't we're not told that when he's getting stuck into Dan Andrews and and the Labor government, are we? Yeah. By, by by Rupert. Um, and just just to finish on Rupert for the week, uh, it's uh, interesting because you know the week before. Adam Samurak was probably as bad as you could get, but he was sort of good because he was exposing what a terrible thing in the Labor Party is and all this this um, branch stacking and all that was going on. And he, he is, you know, he's, he's awful, Adam Samurak, absolutely awful. But then last week he, you know, get to get revenge, you might you noticed he said he'd come back to Parliament to vote against the bill. 
um, which would which would um, which would therefore see it defeated. And suddenly all these letters in the Herald Sun, and the Herald Sun is saying what a great bloke he is. Uh, there's one letter so just saying, God bless you, Adam. Uh, <laughs> and they're, So Adam's gone from villain one week to hero the next because he's turned on Dan. So there you are. It's worth mentioning, I thought. Yeah. No, we certainly <laughs> couldn't be accused <laughs> of not featuring uh, enough conservatives on, on the show. Oh, <laughs> we've given them a big run today. Now, this is an interesting story. They... The New South Wales government uh, wants to privatise or corporatise, and I think leading to privatising their public transport network and their rail network. And their treasury sought a few a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, to to make the point. Their treasury commissioned a report from KPMG, one of the big four international accounting companies, and KPMG. They said, well, we want to see if, in fact, it's better for the state budget if we if we privatise or corporatise all this. And KPMG said, yes, you'll be very wise report. They said you'll be $15 billion better off each year in the budget. Okay. But a bloke called Rod Staples, I think his name is, Rod Staples, who was the head of the transport department, uh, he didn't want this to go ahead. Um, and he commissioned the same company, KPMG, to give him a report to see if it was, if in fact it wasn't good. And wisely, they told him it would cost the budget ten billion dollars. No, twenty billion. Hang on, there was there was fifteen and ten. Yeah, fifteen billion it would save, and then ten he got. So apparently, you save fifteen by losing ten, according to KPMG. But these are the very companies whom governments now go to and spend billions on every year for those sort of those sort of reports and advice, that sort of advice rather than let public servants who traditionally did this sort of work do the job and they keep sacking public servants and paying money to these people who'll tell you exactly what you want to know. Yeah. Um, no, that story sounds eerily familiar to a couple of other stories that you've mentioned over the over the past weeks. Well that's right. And and in fact Rod Staples for his troubles in seeking that KPMG report was sacked without reason. He, he was thrown out. So right. they were obviously anxious to do it. Yeah. So there you are. Now, um, do we have time for one more? Or? We've got. Well, do well. Have you got one more? Because we better go to that to a Pam interview. I think. Well, yeah. There was just another another mining uh, news item, uh, also from the Guardian. Um, now. I'm going to be embarrassed and, and not know quite whether I'm pronouncing this name right, but um, Hochschild Mining, is that how you pronounce mm, I'm it? I'm not sure. Anyway, no, yeah. it's a UK metals company, and they are bravely fighting plans by Peru's government to hasten the closure of uh, several of their mines in in Peru uh, because of concerns over the environmental impact. And this company... Um, has, is quoted as promising to vigorously defend its plan to continue mining gold and silver. Um, and they basically say the government's plan is illegal, uh, that they operate at the highest environmental standards possible, and that they're an important jobs provider in the region. So, you know, just nice to see that... <laughs> Uh, people use the same arguments everywhere. That's right. Oh, <laughs> that's exactly right. And they, you know, all over the world, they're destroying. And I guess you've got to New Guinea on our border, and New Guinea and uh, and West Papua, and what they're doing to the environment there. And yeah. What I saw them doing on Bougainville many, many, many years ago, and that 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 
that ecology and that environment hasn't yet recovered from all that happened over yeah. those years up there, and he's, yet the mine hasn't worked for many, many years. Um, just to finish on that note then, because um, also um, Angus Taylor, our wonderful Minister for Environment, um, no, for, for energy, and he's also called Emissions Reductions Minister, but no-one's told him that's part of his title, obviously. Um, he says he'll not tighten the baselines for the safeguard mechanisms to force Australia's biggest polluters to cut their emissions. And he says the safeguard mechanism was never meant to be a tool to force business to reduce their emissions. Ah. <laughs> he calls it a carbon tax by stealth. So there you are. They hate taxes, those people, don't they? Yes. <laughs> uh, let's find out what's been happening at the Children's Farm. We'll take a break, come back, and we're going to talk to... Um, we've already talked to her, but we'll play the recording we did with Pam Morgan. Um, yes, one moment where I, while I figure out how to take a break, because it's been a while... Um, all right. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Pam, the, the children's farm and the uh, garden there, what's the history of that? Where did the children's farm come into being in the first place? And, uh, and secondly, how did the gardens get there? In, in, um, well, that's it, basically. What's the history of the place? Well, the farm started up in 1979, and I uh, went there as manager about six months after that. There was someone before me who didn't quite work out. So I can't actually tell you about the negotiations that were involved with um, the groups that formed the community gardens, but there are actually two community groups, um, and that was the Greek Elderly Citizens and the Turkish Welfare Association, and they were invited onto the farm to um, have plots and grow veggies. So very early days of the place, it, they were there before I arrived, and I arrived at about six months after the initial opening of the farm. Right. Um, and I guess, in a way, they... The, the plots became a bit more formalised as individual plots as time went on. But, you know, there, there were basically these two groups that were two local community groups that were associated with the development of the gardens. Uh, and the children's farm itself, how did it come into being in the first place? Oh, right. So the children's farm was an idea um, from the, the recreation at the officer at the time, Peter Harry, and he was very conscious that local Collingwood residents had sort of nowhere to go. There were these big farmlands down around the convent that were being used commercially by a florist in Smith Street, and he was paying very low wages to local people to pick some of his flowers. 
and the rest of it was just grazing for his cattle. So um, Peter Harry took the initiative of, of getting together a proposal to have some of the land so that local children could have more of an a- outdoor experience. And council supported him, a lease was negotiated, and the initial um, activities started up, which included school visits, um, weekend activities, etc., etc. When I went there, basically I went there on my own, a sole worker, and I had time off after I'd milked the cow. Well, the cow, actually, there's a bit more to the cow because I, I just saw those things. We didn't have advertising. We just made the place interesting enough that kids would come there. So one of those things was to get a cow in calf and eventually um, kids started coming down to see if this cow had had a calf yet, that sort of thing. So it was just a sort of growing local interest. And um, and then, you know, the, the school visits became more regular. There were quite a few local schools at the time who had permanent spots in the week where they'd bring their kids down and some amazing teachers in the area too who saw... Uh, there was one, I, she said, she was from um, West Richmond and said um, she thought her kids, the kids at the school, lived in one of the most, well, the best places in Melbourne. They had the river... They could walk up the, to the farm from along the river. They had access to the city, all within walking distance, and yet it was seen as an underprivileged school. And she was she was always boosting people with enthusiasm, enthusiasm about what was available to them in their area. Um, ask me another question because I'm rambling on. Well, it, it was. Well, it's, I mean, I've got to say that last point you made. It's quite a remarkable place, really, having that that wonderful venue there, right on the Yarra, right on the edge of the city, right on the edge of suburbia. I've been in urban suburbia, but there's this beautiful spot right there. Um, but also the the groups you mentioned who started up the the garden, who came and, and began the garden, um, was it significant that they represented those communities? What Look, I imagine so. They were two key community groups in the um, municipality of Collingwood at that stage. Um, it was called before amalgamations, and and so they were invited as relatively active community organisations in the area to to participate in this project. And some of the people there today would be uh, descendants or or friends or whatever of those original people. A lot of a lot of the um, Greek elderly, of course, have passed on because it's 40 years ago that the farm started, or a bit over 40 years. But And a lot of the Turkish people who are a younger age group, um, they have moved on to other suburbs and it's not... I don't even know if that group exists anymore, but that was the origins of the, the garden plot. I know it's an area of interest to you, Pam, but what what is the significance of having those gardens there, do you think? Well, I think I think when cultures and eating patterns involve fresh food, um, I think it's important that people have access to growing food. In fact, an enormous amount of food has always been grown in Melbourne. 
but when you haven't got the space, it's pretty hard to keep up those traditions. But it's, it was a place of teaching as well in that um, a lot of the local kids would just hang around there and see what people were doing and they'd end up going home with a bag full of veggies given to them. Um, so it was just creating, I think, a bit more awareness of the food culture. And it, it's an interesting thing Dr Norman Swan mentioned that the longevity of the Mediterranean people who have the Mediterranean diet is well known but he said the second best place or longest living population of European migrants is Melbourne where growing their own food they were able to maintain a lot of those traditions from their own country of having a very much a plant-based diet. Yeah, and I might come back to that, but bringing us to today, we, we, the reason you're on today, of course, is that it has been closed down. The committee has uh, claims that there's that it's too dangerous, and um, the local people claim they've got some ulterior motives. What, what's your position on what's happening at the moment? Um, I think the farm has changed its direction a lot, and it's not, uh, I, I suppose, not respond responsive to the local community and their needs in the same way it was at the start. And I'd, I'd say that across the board. It was a local project. It was supported by Collingwood Council and there was an expectation priority would be given to the people who lived in the area. That was the reason that it was supported. Um, and it, it seems to me that what's happened is it's become a um, eastern suburbs destination I'm really, look, I have to just speak from basically uh, talking to other people. I haven't been to the farm for a number of years and it's over 20 years since I worked there. Uh, so it is a long time. But there is a, a Facebook group of uh, old Collingwood Children's Farm kids, which I, I'm allowed to be a member of still. Um, and... The feeling is that it's no longer a place that gives gives support for local people to be involved in the same way that it used to. So, you know, there's still a young farmers program. I, I think there was some holiday program they were running um, for young people, but it was almost a hundred bucks a day, I think, to to participate in that. That certainly doesn't sound as though they... Unless they had special concessions for people who um, lived... Well, were low-income people. There's a lot still... Yarra's an interesting municipality and always has been because of its extremes of wealth and poverty. And I think that still exists. I haven't been looking at the figures again for quite some time. But you, you still have extremely disadvantaged populations living in that area, as well as, obviously, the sort of housing boom in a city, you know, dwellers. So uh, I think any organisation in Collingwood that sees itself, well, it's Abbotsford, actually, but sees itself as uh, providing for the local community needs to be actually looking at who's coming, who's using the place, and is it accessible to the local people? And so a lot of that's sort of the image that is created, 
and we were always very careful to have local kids involved in showing people around the farm and and displaying it to others and being seen as belonging, you know, having some sort of ownership over that place. And that was quite an intentional um, direction that we took to give them status where they might well be ignored. Otherwise. And I think that's one of the criticisms at the moment, isn't it? One of the one of the points made by those who who have been the plot holders is that they're trying to privatise it in some ways, and and in fact almost um, almost gentrified. I guess you could argue in terms of what's happened in the inner suburbs. Um, in terms of the plots, I don't know about, about gentrification so much. Although the plots have always been pretty messy, and if you look at anyone gardening on a hillside in Turkey or in, you know, a patch of rough ground in Greece, they use everything that's available to them, rocks and bits of wood. You know, they're not necessarily a, a British, you know, potager that's halfway between a, a food-producing garden and a decorative garden. They definitely have a purpose. They're there to produce food and you use whatever materials you can scrounge. So there is a little bit of that. But I think um, what's happening now is this: there's a, a strong movement around cities for sustainable food systems. And so uh, a lot of land is taken up by people who might want to start a small business enterprise. So I think that's more the direction that the of what's happening with the plots at the moment. There was a study done by a fellow from Chris Williams from Burnley or University of Melbourne as it is now on the potential to have a sort of small enterprise plots there that it could be much more productive and provide a market and so on. So it's yeah, I don't, it's not just about gentrification. It is about this sort of small business enterprise, food-related uh, systems that, you know, I, I, I'm quite happy to participate in. I go to my local farmer's market, etc. I think it's great, but I don't... The issue is about who should be able or to, to use the land down at the children's farm. Yeah. So... This was quite a thing, even. Oh, sorry, yeah, go on. This was a thing, even back in the day I was there, where people would come down and say, "Oh God, this land is magic. We could, we could, with an acre here, we could run a business growing berry fruits." And they always assumed that that was the best use for the land, instead of looking at the constitution as a children's farm was that the best use of the land and I felt anyone who who had that sort of initiative to run a business could also run it elsewhere and so I never went in for those sort of concepts but um, you know times have changed in that many years very much the committee itself where is it elected from it's anyone can stand for the committee of management. It's it's an open elective system. I don't, as far as I know, you don't have to be uh, even a local community member. 
most of me because we don't know much about that. But the, um, yeah, right, and and of course um, the um, the the campaign going on at the moment. Uh, uh, where do you think it's going to end up? Do you think there's a chance of uh, of a re- being reopened and people being allowed to go back to their plots? I really, I really don't know. The you know the last I heard that, and it was that the committee wanted to appoint the person who would negotiate, rather than it being an you know someone with independence. So I really don't know what hope there is of resolving it. But there's so much, so much memory and history for all those people involved in the plots and. There's such a history, you know, 40 years is a long time. It doesn't mean any one of them has been there that that length of time, but, you know, the existence, how they work, how they operate in the local community, the food that gets distributed from those places, that history has been there for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and the fact, the fact that uh, they want to... Well, there's a suggestion they want to turn it over to to making profit from that land. Uh, it is on crown land. Should that affect it? Um, look, I'm not even sure that it's a profit thing motive that's driving it. It might be a wage motive. You know that um, more people could learn about urban agriculture and they could get a small wage in the process or something like that. I don't. I mean. The other things that are happening at the farm, like wedding photos, and sometimes you know you can't use the back paddock for grazing because the cow poos are too big, and then when they have the market there, people might tread in them, and that's not okay. You know, there's all these aspects of the farm as a whole that um, have got to do with this need to continue to support it. There's less. Uh, less grants, fewer grants coming in all the time. I, I understand, but you know, I'm really completely out of touch with the current situation. But um, that's, I think, that's why charging people for activities is uh, becoming more important to keeping going. But it's not necessarily um, fulfilling that original charter of. of adding a, a whole new range of experience to the local community and particularly those who are least able to get away from the city and, you know, find a bit of country peace. And that's where the gentrification might have had an impact in the terms of the sort of people who are now on the committee vis-a-vis who were there originally. Yes, definitely. I think that's the biggest impact, yes. Yeah. Just to finish up, Pam, um, your broad, the broader area of, of sustainable food and, and cities and things, chewing COVID, um, has that had an impact on, on the whole idea of people growing their own food and uh, and becoming sustainable? Oh, it certainly has. I think, I think there's been huge activity on all sorts of networks of um, people just starting learning you know, how to grow their own food. Um, big conversations all the time <laughs> with varied levels of success. But, yes, I think it has. Having that extra string to your bow. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> 
that's a whole other subject, of course. But uh, all right. But look, thanks for your time today, Pab, and um, let's hope they can resolve the situation at the children's farm and it can get back to something like the original that you were involved with. Yes, it's a lovely place. <laughs> okay, Pab, thanks so much. Okay, thanks, Kevin. Radio. Okay. Bye. <clears throat> okay, that was Pam Morgan. Of course, that was pre-recorded on Monday. That interview. Pam was the, one of the, almost the original, long-term anyway, manager of the children's farm, and talking about the current issue down there. And let's hope it does get resolved, so people can get back into those gardens and uh, yeah. get them working. Zeb. Okay, on the line now we've got Jessica Harrison from uh, down Wonthaggy Way. Uh, Jessica, I mentioned earlier in the program, a um, number of times been on this program talking about desalination plant years ago. But Jess, um, at the moment it's, it's housing. What's the issue down there with housing? Oh, well, um, in the desal, the bad old days of when the desal plant um, was being built, there was a real increase in rents because the desal workers were using their their generous entitlements to basically rent all the properties. But now what we have is really the effect of COVID and possibly a sort of general chaos of capitalism type effect, which mm-hmm. is that it's very hard to find places to rent here that you can actually afford. And so, um, so yes, the average rent for a three-bedroom house is around 400 a week. Um, which we find a real shock because everyone's used to things being a bit cheaper here. And also, um, we don't really know. It could easily be sort of getting higher than that. Um, I don't know. You would know more about the average price for for, um, rental in in Melbourne, I mean. Um, But, uh, yeah, so it's been... Since COVID, there have always been a few people um, sleeping rough. And um, during... At the beginning of before the COVID hit, COVID hit last year, we ran a meeting with Defend and Extend Public Housing and PIPSI, um, Public Interest Before Corporate Interests, and um, that was about the housing issue because the caravan park, which um, a lot of people live in when there's not much else possible, was demolished, and we wanted to see some real, you know, immediate local action to provide that kind of accommodation, and um, we didn't see it. Does this, and obviously there must be a lot of people down there on either on low incomes or on on welfare or, or you know, who, who desperately need low-cost housing. That's right, yes. And so there hasn't been, as far as I've lived here for around 20 years, but, I mean, as far as I can tell from talking to the locals, there hasn't really been a substantial building program for public housing here for, you know, around 40 years. And so we have our little pockets of public housing and we've got people now in our group who um, are, are part of the of public housing tenants. But what happened was, due to the fact we've got a brand spanking new Labor MP in the area, um, that um, $25 has actually been allocated by the Andrews government for building or they're calling it social housing, affordable housing, etc. Mm-hmm. So um, our group really exists to get the best possible outcome for that $25 million. And, of course, a lot of people are throwing around a lot of fun ideas like tiny homes and, um, you know, this and that. But really, the money's there. It's our, it's our collective money, and we want it to be spent on good, secure housing, and we want it to be capped at 
25% of people's income um, because there's no point in having housing that could end up in the private sector or could not or could be pegged to the market rents. Yeah, the, the small pockets of public housing you talk about, have some of those also been sold off or effectively privatised? Been actually. No, they haven't been, um, luckily. Of course, we're aware of what's been happening in Melbourne with that, the running the running down process, and then the, oh, no, they're, they're run down, therefore we should sell them off type scenario. <laughs> and, and I saw that when I lived in Britain in the 80s as well under Thatcher. So... Mm. Um, I'm aware of that whole process, but the public housing that we've got in Wonsaggie is pretty good. It hasn't got solar, so some of our friends who were there find the bills a bit hard. Um, and there is also some community housing, which does have retrofitted solar PV and um, solar hot water. So, you know, there's, there's positive things, and we, of course, want the public housing to be retrofitted as well for solar and the the other people who are there want some, you know, communal facilities and so on. So um, we've got a lot of um, irons in the fire. And so we're trying, we're having a public meeting on the 4th of December um, where we hope we can um, just really air all those issues. And we've got a lot of passionate local people who are, who are part of, for example, example Wonsaggi Urban Land Care. And so they're aware of where all the public land is around and and we basically want that public land to have good secure housing on it. Yeah, because in Melbourne of course they give it over to a private developer and it become very expensive apartments or something but uh, <clears throat> let's hope. Um, Jess the, um, the the people in, in well, not even in people in public housing, people there generally uh, we're seeing stories increasingly of people having to choose between feeding the kids, between paying the rent, between paying, like you mentioned the electricity oh. bills um, mm. that, that must be an ongoing problem for people now it seems it to be increasing poverty in the community Oh absolutely because we also have quite an active branch of the um, Australian Unemployed Workers Union and so we get, oh, last year we got a lot of media that's basically what we call poverty porn, where they want to talk to you about how bad everything is. Um, but I got a great quote from one of the local members of the union. He said, well, you can either choose to have a life or you can eat, but not both. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, Why am I yeah, laughing at that? It's not funny, is it? Yeah, well, that's it. Um but, yeah, so people have taken matters into their own hands and there are very people tucked away in the bush <laughs> um, who the locals, as far as I know, support. Well, they're still there. <laughs> in fact, one guy's got, got a, a place that, with a sign on it saying private property, which is pretty funny <laughs> because he's actually, yeah, on public land. But um, mean, it, meant, it means that he's been left alone because people tend to respect yeah, uh, nice. Uh, Same private property. <laughs> um, but really, um, it can't go on. I mean, those are the people we know about. People were also sleeping in the school, which has, is the old school. Um, there's been a new school built since um, since we got a Labor MP, basically. Um, but, uh, yeah, people are hanging on in quiet desperation. And um, already, before... When we were planning our public meeting, there were letters in the local paper of people saying, look, I'm due for eviction now and I don't know what I'm going to do. So, of course, I mean, the idea of a sort of tent city and all that could be possible in a in a bigger area. But 
it's quite hard in a small town because everyone knows each other. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and so the, the tents just happen on the quiet. But we're pretty stirred up and we've got great people in our group, you know, who've got the sort of, who are the Wonsaggy locals from the mining days or connected to them. Um, and so, yeah, we're hoping that we can really push things forward and, yeah, talk about... And we will end up talking about a whole lot of things, not just housing, you know, just about how hard it is to live in the system as it is now, where people are forced to go on ridiculous courses that mean nothing um, or and, you know, get their... Um, get demerit points from the job agencies, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and there are people obviously sleeping rough there then. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Well, because we, I help run a, a free um, food outlet at the community house where we just put the food out in boxes um, and people just take what they want. So it's a really, you don't have to, um, you know, give your details or anything the way you do with the established charities like Salvo. So we're aware of that. We know, we've got to know some of the people who are sleeping rough. We don't know where they're sleeping rough, but... I've talked to them about, you know, is the food that we're putting out the kind of stuff you need? And they all went, yeah, great, it's really good. Um, so, yeah, we're sort of in touch with the situation and and where, you know, how quickly we'll actually see um, housing built is another question because we don't want it to hang on, you know. We don't want, you know, the election cycle to continue with there still being this no provision for actual roofs and, you know, houses for people. Another thing that's happened in the last week, one of the local councillors put forward um, a resolution that um, roadside verges could be used for building public, public housing. So we're sort of keen on that, but, of course, some people have pointed out some of the land might not be a very relaxing place to live because it's not very good. But, you know, we have got a lot of roadside verges in Wonsaggi because the town was built as a um, state coal mine town so it was actually planned. It was originally a tent town so it shows it's ironic that um, that now people are living in tents because they can't afford the rent. That's right. Back mm. to the future so to speak. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the money that was allocated, it was allocated, um, the government talks about social housing, it talks about community housing, it talks about affordable housing, whatever that means. Yeah. Um, uh, um, really, as we know, it really does, as we, we labour this on this program time and again, we, we, it rarely talks anymore about public housing as such. But is any of that money allocated for one thing or are you trying to get housing built there? No, um, it's it's allocated for the Bass Coast Shire, which includes Phillip Island and Montaggy. Oh, well, and yeah. So there is $25 million, um, and possibly more allocated. So, you know, it is pretty exciting. I mean, we couldn't quite believe it when we heard it. Um, you know, our little meagre public housing units that, you know, everyone, of, of course, are occupied... Um, and then, of course, the other thing that concerns us is should be more short-term housing. At the moment, there are a few little tucked-away units that people get put in for. They're supposed to be put in for three months until they can get more secure accommodation, but that doesn't always happen, and sometimes people are stuck in there for a year in, a, in temporary accommodation, which is not good for your health, really. Mm. Another thing that happened is because and we were told this by one of the welfare agencies, that because of the lack of emergency accommodation here, um, someone got put in a taxi and sent to St Kilda for the night. So that's a couple of hours 
drive. And then at the end of that night, of course, they were back homeless. So, yeah, these are the kind of crazy things that happen. And the cost of a taxi and water, it's just just ridiculous in terms of what Oh, I know, yeah. But, I mean, um, you know, in the old... When we had a caravan park that could take people short-term, that people would... You know, the welfare agencies would actually pay for them to stay overnight in the caravan, although they actually denied that. But um, we know people who got put there. Um, So, you know, that at least meant that they were in the town that they knew, not shoved builder. I mean, what a recipe for disaster, you know. Mm. Anyway, the caravan park's gone and um, most of the people got rehoused from the caravan park. And, and friends of ours who lived in the who were in the unemployed workers union who lived there actually said they quite liked living there because um, it was a community thing. You know, you'd see your neighbours out and about the way you don't in a in a street. But yeah, it looks like there will be housing built. And we're going to make sure that, especially if it's on Crown land, which is public land, um, of course, stolen land, um, but that um, that stays in the, as much as in the public sector it's got to because the idea of a private housing organisation taking over the ha- managing housing which has been built on public land doesn't quite sit well with us. No, and of course the point you made earlier about 25% of your income because if it's if it's not public housing then it's going to be social housing which is which is a higher it's usually yeah, 33%. Yeah, can be anything, yeah. yeah. I've got that great poster put out by Rahu, you know, Rental and Housing Union and it, it clearly shows, you know, that that, the, that affordable housing can be up to um, up to eighty percent of the market rate. So mm. Affordable to whom? You know, it's a sliding scale when you use vague terms like that. Well, we so, keep we keep making the point that if you're if you're in Elizabeth Street, Melbourne, homeless, sleeping on the gutter, if mm. someone says good news, the government's building affordable housing, it won't make a lot of difference to your life. Mm. No, that's right. And did you see the terrible news that a homeless person got killed last night yeah, on or yeah, yesterday yeah, yeah on the road naturally if they'd had a place to live they wouldn't have been crossing the road on at 3 a.m you no, know so and they still haven't identified the person either unfortunately really yeah, mm, well they hadn't yeah. by the hadn't on the news this morning so yeah. yeah just in the time left jess um just the um the diesel plant we were down there opposing it and uh i went to a couple of rallies down there at the time and uh uh, what's happened since? Is it? I don't know well, it... it's kind of old, because we've had this influx of new people moving down here because for various reasons they want to get out of the city. It's almost sort of like news that people don't even relate to that whole fight that we had. I mean, we were trying to stop water production for the whole of the Melbourne area from being privatised. Well, it was privatised, and um, now. The state government, in its, um, in its magnificence, decided to regularly order water, which is not really needed. Um, but they're ordering, um, they've got a standard order in, um, which means that, of course, the company is making some kind of money out of it. And the state of Victoria is still paying for the borrowing that they, that, that consortium did to actually fund the thing. One of the other objections at the time, apart from the privatisation of water, which in itself is bad enough, but uh, that the the brine that um, in the desalination process was going to be poured back into the into the sea, and the fear was that that could upset the 
entire ecological balance of the of the marine life there. Is yeah, any, well, what's happening yeah. there? We know it is. Oh well, we haven't heard anything lately. I mean, it's not just brine. That's the thing. It's also all the chemicals that are used to clean the sieves, which basically the marine ecosystem is shoved through to produce um, clear, clear non-salty water. So it's a mixture of, of toxic chemicals and brine. And um, as far as we know, it's still being pumped out. And then the solid waste is still being taken to the toxic waste dump um, on the edge of the city. Oh, a Lindbrook. Lister, Lindbrook, yeah. Listerfield, Lindbrook, yeah. whichever one it is. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. Right. So I mean, we anyway. <laughs> yeah, we haven't heard any sort of intel. I mean, I wouldn't mind betting that, the, you know, the investors would regard it as a pretty bad deal because they haven't. it hasn't been... There hasn't been a huge demand for water, therefore they haven't been able to really ramp it up. But it's still running. And it, the interesting thing with a Victorian contract is that they weren't contracted to automatically supply a certain amount of water, um, irrespective of the need. It had to be actually the Victorian government deciding to help them hold their hand by ordering the water. And that's what's been going on. Right. And uh, desalination is also a really energy-intensive process, oh, isn't it? yeah. That's right. I mean, we still, until just recently, we still had the billboards up saying about the amount of energy that it takes to produce, you know, one litre of desalinated water. And that was our, one of our main issues. Is that it's a very energy intensive and, and produces huge amount of carbon emissions, you know, because the power from it is coming um, from, you know, our dirty, our dirty stations over in the Latrobe Valley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, well. There's another issue down there. I don't know if you know much, of, or you, whether you know enough about it to say anything. But I think about now the environment effects process is about to conclude. Um, but that that um, that rare earths plant, the the plant further east in um, in Gippsland, you, yeah. down near down near Lakes en- down near Lakes Entrance, which Co- we've talked about. about yeah, Cobar one. That's the one, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I just saw this morning that it's been knocked back. Oh, good, because I, I know about now the minister was going to give the response. We were hoping that yeah. was the response. Well, we'll... Uh, well that, I saw a few celebratory posts oh. going around Facebook. Oh, that's great so, news! Yeah. You've announced you've made you've announced some great news on city limits, which is a pity because we usually <laughs> this program is all about depression and keeping people oh, feeling better. Yeah, well, but you know, it's that thing. Yeah, if you really well, you can. It, a lot of it depends on the electoral cycle, really. But you can be really determined. You can have everything in place, and you can still lose. But um, that sounded like that was a success, like with the um, gas. Um, Planted Hastings. Um, in Hastings, yeah, that was a success. Two so, in a year, yeah. we, we, interviews we have on this program, but we, we don't expect this sort of thing, but two in a year, Hastings and if this one now, it's, yeah. it's great news, actually, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, well we've, yeah, we'll have to, oh, we'll have to, to end up soon, but... Yeah, um, finishing on a, on, a, on a cheery note. That's yeah. Bad, <laughs> well, are there any um, places that listeners can go to support at the oh, causes that you're behind? Yeah. yeah, that's it, the housing thing. Yeah, so we've got a Facebook page we've just set up, Housing Matters Bass Coast, that's the name of our group. And we're meeting today and we'll be we'll be continuing to meet. And if we have enough people, we're going to break into um, working groups. And so that... we'll be continuing to fight to get good, reliable, yeah. And um, just the details yeah. of that public meeting, Jess? So oh, people... yeah, so it's on, it's on Saturday the 4th of December at one o'clock in the Baptist Church. 
We right. didn't particularly want to be in the Baptist Church, but the council offices are all being used for COVID um, checking, so that's what happened. About to say, good to see you going to church, Jess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, they've been they've been pretty good so far. We wanted to be in the council foyer like we were last time, but yeah, that wasn't to be. So. All right. Well, look, we'll keep in touch with it, but thanks for your time today and um, good luck with the whole campaign. Uh, okay. Thank you, then. All right. Cheers. Right thanks, okay. Jess. Bye. Jessica Harrison there, who's, as you can tell, a wonderful activist down that part of the world in Montpaggy, and uh, we'll keep in touch with what's happening with that one. Another housing issue. Yep. Zeb, thanks for doing You've done a great job keeping us on air today. Everything's worked well. You've done a great job. Yeah, a little yeah. bit of panic behind the scenes. <laughs> but <laughs> When that phone call worked well and we got, Zeb, got Jess on the line, um, Zeb gave a big cheer in the studio so she got it right because it was great. <laughs> a silent cheer. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't lose the phone call. Okay, next week is, we're back to the, well, actually next week's the first day of summer, so we're going to have John McPherson. It'll be transport, Zeb, next week. Yes, it will. We're looking forward to that. Say goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.